Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 14. Today, Professor Stearns is going to walk us through some aspects of his philosophy on education. We're going to have a discussion about that. But before we do that, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Let's talk about some books. Books and business. Oh, there it, it is. is. There it is. It's lovely. All right, I'm going to start. I just, I'm working through a book called Undeniable by Doug Axe. It's an apologetics book. He is a scientist who worked on a project at, I believe it's uh, Cambridge. He, he was studying how, if you know anything about DNA, protein strands have to fold and then unfold in a very specific way. And scientists have studied this, and there is it's very hard to show that this could have accidentally happened on evolution. Anyways, he was skeptical of the evolutionary answer, and so he wanted to go on a grant to study this whole protein folding thing. Midway into the first section, he's telling the story where he talks to his supervisor and he says, yeah, I'd really like to find a reason to explain why proteins are able to fold the way they are because that shouldn't happen. And his evolutionary supervisor thinks this is a great idea, not realizing that Axe is very skeptical that this can be proven. Axe goes through the research, realizes, shows that this can't be proven. And his supervisor is very excited when he thinks he's going to come up with like an evolutionary explanation. But as soon as it comes out at the end of his research that he's going to say this can't happen, he experiences what very much surprises him. His supervisor and all of the other people he's working with get kind of distant and kind of quiet around him, give him kind of like the cold shoulder. Like no one's out and out rude, but he kind of gets like marginalized off to the side. And all he did was follow research protocol and do everything. And so he makes this point that even though science today says we're being unbiased and we just want to seek truth, there is an agenda there. So it was a really interesting uh, beginning to his story. I don't know how far I'll make it through the book, but I'm reading it for my field. So very interesting so far. I've been studying archaeology, and the, another book is Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament, Cultural, Social, and Historical Contexts. Uh, this is uh, an edited book, so there are a consortium of authors. The section, One section is the Sets and Props Archaeology. There are six chapters on archaeology. The chapter I'm going to just comment on here is the one by Seymour Kitten, Introduction to Biblical Archaeology, where he actually goes through a history of archaeology. I always knew that William Foxwell Albright was a, a, a key figure when it came to archaeological studies. He's written a ton of books. Everybody talks about him. But I didn't realize how much he actually um, established the field as a scientific enterprise. Uh, so archaeology before 1920 was very unscientific. Everybody was kind of doing their own thing. Um, but Albright got together with these other countries and they really systematized the process of uh, archaeology. So a really good book. Um, I haven't read much of it because it is a consortium of authors. I'm sure there are some chapters that are really duds, um, but the chapter that I worked through there was excellent. You sold that so well. I would not have anticipated that I would be interested in that. But you, ju you just sold me on maybe that chapter. That sounded incredibly interesting to me. Yeah, it's a new book too. I just published a couple of years ago, I think like 2018 or so. I'm going to mention a book. The common thread of all three of these books is that 
we haven't finished them all. <laughs> so we might forgo the goodness scale. But, but that's also, them. that's okay, right? It's yeah. okay to start books. Start a bunch of them. Sorry. Okay, I, go ahead. Yeah, so I the, just, book, mm. the book that I'm, I've read, chapter one, Post-Christian is the name of the book. Gene Edward, is it Veith? Veith. Veith, mm. Gene Edward Veith, Veith, something like that. Post-Christian, he's playing on this idea of post-modern, and we're now developing a culture that is like post-truth, and he's going to bring the Christian flavor to that. And really, if I, I could describe chapter one, he's talking about constructivism, how we get to this idea of a social construct, and how that is a development out of a God-centered, really truth-centered worldview. And we kind of mentioned worldviews before, and the, the time frame is, is significant, like the, what's what I'm looking for? I'm not, Renaissance is not the word I'm looking for. Well, help me out. Uh, enlightenment. enlightenment, yeah. You're talking so about like the Enlightenment. Enlightenment and so Galileo, some of those events in there with the Copernican theory of, of the solar system. A lot of the, those ways of thinking shifting away from truth at the center to like man at the center and man becoming more of a part of the, um, you know, putting things under the microscope and, and dissecting and kind of finding out how things really are and, and that changing the way that people perceive and, and understand what truth is. And that is how we get to, he, he kind of connects the dots in that first chapter of how we get from that to now how everything is just this constructed truth. It's, it's really interesting and I, I definitely plan to finish it, but it is not one that you can just quickly glide through because he makes so many references and connecting ideas. He's throwing in some block quotes. And you're like, well, you, I really have to pause and, and think this one through. Uh, but liked for the first chapter. So, and Tim, you've read Post-Christian too, right? Uh, yeah, you know, as much as I read any book, I just little snippets and stuff. But the that book interested me uh, primarily in the area of the body. Uh, Nancy Percy has written a book, Love Thy Body, and this whole uh, idea of the body, but it's something we should probably review and go over at another time. Sure, we can do that in another podcast. So that's a good way to segue into Andy's discussion for today. So what do you got for us? Well, today I thought it would be good for us to talk about teaching or education or learning or you know whatever you want to say. Um, I, I stumbled across a quote a long time ago that really captured what I think is is maybe indicative of good teaching, and I think maybe we've seen that in the our favorite teachers, but think of the teacher that you can remember who you thought, man, that was a great teacher. Man, that was really helpful. Why? That's a great question. It, why? Why? Because they tickled my ears and made me laugh. Mm, well, that's true. So depending on what you value in the class, uh -huh. you might come up with the wrong answer. Right. So here's, here's where I've asked a question for a long time, and I'm not near to the end of the path. I'm, I'm trying to get there. But when I was a sophomore in college, I knew that I think I'm supposed to be a teacher either in a Christian college or in a Christian high school, some sort of a context. I really wanted to study the Bible. I had realized that there are only two things that are eternal, the souls of people and the word of God. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord shall stand forever. And so we're going to invest. Let's invest in one of those eternal things, right? That's incredible because I can remember thinking almost that identical thought. Like as a new believer, I got saved when I was 16. And I started thinking through like all the things that I had wanted to do. And then the thought popped in my head. People, people are eternal. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, if you want to do something that, you know, God wants to get done. Yes. 
minister to people. So like, it's the exact same thought. Anyway, that's that so just, cool. That stoked my mind there. But anyway. Uh, well, okay. But that, and that's, that's part of what was going on here. So I'm trying to think like, you know, okay, so I want to be a teacher. So from my sophomore year on, every class I'm taking, I'm also thinking like, how, how do they do so well at what they do? Like, why is this one teacher so good? So I'm asking this question a lot. What is it about the teacher that's helpful, beneficial? I'm trying to think of this, and I'm not like an expert on this, but so that's my background. So I'm reading a book called Wordsmithy, oh, eight years ago, I think, Doug Wilson. We've talked about it on the podcast a couple times. And I ran across a quote, and the minute I read it, I thought, ah, this is it. He just captured where my mind was going. So this is the quote I want to share, and I want you to think about this when it comes to teachers you've had or Sunday school, or if you are a Sunday school teacher, this is helpful. If you are a parent and you're teaching your children, this is going to be helpful. If you are a student and you want to know how to work better as you're learning, this will help you. So Wilson says this, he says, I have long said that good teaching consists in loving your subject in front of students whom you also love. Loving your subject in front of students whom you also love. So I want to unpack that very briefly. What does it mean to love your subject? You know, as I think about this, it means you you need to know your subject. If, if I say I love underwater basket weaving and I literally know nothing about it, that's one kind of love. But if you've studied underwater basket, okay, now my, my co-hosts here are giving me weird looks. Okay, maybe I should pick a normal topic. Is that what you're saying? Just keep, keep going with it. <laughs> Whatever your subject is, if you say you love it, there's a natural extension to studying it well so that you know it. And if you really love it and you try to explain to someone and they look confused, you generally want to try again so they get it. So I remember thinking, oh, that's a good example of some of my teachers. If I had a question and I would ask them a question, they often knew the answer. Or if they could sense that the class was a little confused, they would back up and try to explain it better. Um, it was, it, they were very helpful. So I think like knowledge is part of that. I also think interest plays a factor. Um, are you interested in the subject? Uh, you, you need to have an interest in something that you're going to teach. And so I think if you're a Sunday school teacher, you can show up and, and read the textbook or, or read the, the curriculum. But if you, Tim, I think you said it privately or maybe even once on this podcast. Um, if you're teaching, like you're going to preach it needs to affect you. We, we had a conversation about yeah. that recently. Maybe we'll bring that up in a future episode. But, but I would say that I think that's a big deal. I think that loving your subject is important. Uh, imagine if you didn't love your subject. I think what that would look like is you really don't know what you're, what you're trying to say. People ask questions you don't know. And so as I thought back, oh, yeah, I think that was, that was a mark of good teachers. They, they knew their subject. They must have loved their subject. <laughs> The second one is they love the student. And so here, man, this is what really clicked it together with me for me is uh, here's your teacher and my teachers that I had m almost never made me feel like I was bothering them. Most of them would open their doors and, and you know, in their offices or meet me here, answer my emails. And I remember being at other schools and, uh, a couple, you know, like early on community colleges, and it's it's fine. They're just very busy, but trying to get a hold of the teacher was very hard, and uh, you don't always have time with them. And and I remember thinking the best teachers that I've had are the ones who can make time to talk to their students, which sounds a lot like 
discipling people, spending time with them. So let me give you some examples. If, if you, or do you want to dive in here? Go ahead. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I experienced. And then I want to ask you two where you've experienced this as students as well. So when I was a student, uh, so Dr. Paul Hartog, any of his classes, I think he was a good example of loving his subject. Most everything Dr. Paul taught, I felt like he had an encyclopedic knowledge of it. And you could really tell he really liked it and he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to communicate it. So he loved it and he knew it. Yes. But I would say, and I would, I would just make the case that if you don't know it, you're not loving it as much as you ought to. Okay. So if you partly know it, I, I, but I think if you really truly love it, you're going to, like you love Hebrew and you are pushing yourself to understand it, exegesis, Old Testament. And I think there's an element of, of loving it. That, that that exhibits itself by continuing to study it and behold it and learn it. Sure. Uh-huh. So that was one. I think uh, Dr. Doug's another example. I had teaching methods with him way back in the day, and you should see this guy teach teaching methods. He was delighting it. I mean, his eyebrows were going like all the way to the back of his head. He's laughing. He's kind of making fun of us at times, but that was good because we totally deserved it because we were just not not listening well. But, man, he understood ministry. He understood teaching. He understood why an illustration matters, why object lessons fit here or there. It was great. And then the third thought, I think, of when it comes to professors loving their subject, the the third person I think it was Dr. Newman. Every counseling class I ever took with him, he could, I don't think there was an end to his answers. We would ask him and he would just keep going. And then sometimes you would ask a question and he would answer it and raise another question you hadn't thought of yet, and then answer that one. And I remember thinking, oh, that is amazing. How does he do that? So that was the way I experienced teachers loving the subject. On that, what I just said, do you guys have any input how you could think of, like, have you experienced teachers loving their subjects as well? The first one that comes to mind for me would be my Old Testament professor, uh, John Hartog III. He loved Hebrew. Uh, he loved the Old Testament, and it exuded out of him uh, in every single one of his classes. He also had a personal interest, or personal interest in me. I don't know. He was a pastor, and I went to his church. So I not only saw him as a professor, but I also saw him as a pastor, uh, responsibly feeding the flock on a regular basis. Um, so when I think of uh, somebody who loved their topic, loved their subject, and, you know, he was, he was a significant reason why I am where I am now. His love for Hebrew and love for the Old Testament uh, has definitely rubbed off on me. Mm-hmm. I, I remember experiencing that, too, in the classroom. He, man, he, would, he loved his topics he was talking about, just mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah, I would, I would probably mention the exact same guys that you already mentioned. Uh, Dr. Paul, Dr. Doug, Dr. Newman, I mean... We're in a fishbowl here. We've all went. Yep. went we, did, we didn't all go to college here, but we've all taken classes here, interacted with these men quite a bit. And uh, I could mention, I, I've had both of you as professors, but out of uh, not wanting to say more about one than the other, I won't say anything. But I think you guys easily would demonstrate a love for the subject in your classes. But uh, I think Dr. Paul is probably the supreme example for me. It's just that he, you never get the indication that he's ever bored with anything he's telling you. No, <laughs> no and, boredom. And, and if you haven't interacted with Dr. Paul, 
you haven't had a class from him. He has a very wide range of expertise. And when I was a college student, I took philosophy, intro to philosophy, intro to ethics, Western Civ, American history, and systematic theology. So it's, it's I mean, a pretty wide range of fields in every one of those classes. It's like, he, he, he again, just you never got the indication. Like, you'd never hear him say, ah, oh, this doesn't really matter. You know, eh, yeah. you know. Like, he mm-hmm. put a lot of effort in. You could, you could see it in the way that he, he presented himself. And, I mean, a lot of nights he probably didn't get that much sleep, but he was, he was there. <laughs> he was ready to go. That's true. And uh, I, I wish I wish I could go back to, uh, I mean, some uh, you you already said, you know, you didn't always listen well. I, I know I was not ready for intro to philosophy when I took it. Oh, I, know. I wish I would paid better attention. You know, I've never had a philosophy class. You've never what? had a philosophy class? Because the Bible college I went to didn't require a philosophy oh. class. I don't know how I got through wow. a bachelor's degree without having a philosophy yeah. class. I've actually, I've actually never had an ethics class either. Your oh ethics with Dr. Paul yeah, was I've like thought, top three college I've classes. I talked to him about just sitting in on the class oh, because you it totally would be really it. helpful for me. But anyway, it wow. matters where you go to school. Yep, you need does. to look at the curriculum. Yep, because the Bible college I went to didn't uh, didn't require mm-hmm. philosophy or ethics, and it was a major hole in their collegiate education. I don't even know how it was possible. On another note, the uh, another person of interest that really impacted me was Dr. Myron Houghton. Oh, yes. Oh, we yeah. went out to eat on several occasions, and I remember one time specifically because I was struggling with Reformed theology and dispensationalism, and I had some people in my life that were uh, influential to me, and they were really arguing for Reformed theology. And what I remember him saying is, Tim, listen, the Reformed system, it works. If you agree to their hermeneutical presupposition, the system works. The, the difference is that our system is better because we don't have to read into the scriptures. We can use a regular grammatical historical hermeneutic throughout all the Bible. That's why dispensationalism is better. We had that conversation over a meal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that personal one-on-one uh, uh, discipleship um, influence, that was uh, very uh, formative in my theological education. It wasn't just the classroom, it was even outside the classroom. And that transitions to, actually, let me jump back one more time. I, there are lots of teachers who were very good at loving their subjects, so I don't want to leave anyone mm-hmm. out. So if I'm not mentioning someone and you know I've had a classroom, it's not that I didn't think that. I do want to say something, though. I had Dr. Cole in Intro to Bible Study, and he, he didn't realize how influential he was. He made a comment that if you want to be a Bible expositor, if you want to really explain God's word, you have to have an insatiable desire to understand the word and the, the Lord's word. And I remember he said this with such passion and I thought, he that's it. That's what I want. Like mm-hmm. that's in here. I didn't, that's exactly it. And so, so loving the subject is important. But what you just said about Dr. Myron taking you out to eat I think loving your student is huge. Um, there are teachers who I remember having, actually, thankfully not here, it was when I was at a different school, where I think they were very, very knowledgeable. They loved their subject, but it was almost like us students were, we were we were a bother. Like they had other things they wanted to do. And so I've thought at times, I think sometimes the way as a teacher you shape your student is by loving them because they know you're interested. So if you think about it in Sunday school, 
if you know your Sunday school teacher or as a parent, like if you as a parent are always telling your kid or your parent was always telling you the right thing, but you got the idea they didn't really care about you, didn't love you, your, your influence is different. And so I think mm-hmm. when I look back at my teachers, I see what you saw, Tim. So like I think of Dr. Newman, I don't know how many hours if I had to count up I spent in that poor man's office asking him questions about life. I mean, he had to deal with Stearns all the time. <laughs> poor guy, you know, and just, you know, probably trying to tons of other things. Uh, Dr. Doug, I think I've been to Panchero's. I don't know. He introduced me to Panchero's. I, oh, man, so good. Dr. George took me out. Um, oh, this is the, two more things. Y- you've taken modules here, Charlie. One of the best things about taking a module at Faith Seminary is if it's Dr. Doug or Dr. Paul, their wives make snacks. And generally, I don't know, maybe they don't do this now, but back in the day, like they would make the full spread of amazing, like sugared bacon, like, like crunchy bacon with all the sugar or like chocolate covered straw. Like, who knows? Like really elaborate things. And I remember as a student thinking, you guys are so busy and you're making us treats. And it was a, it was a little thing, but I remembered it. And I want to give a shout out to my Hebrew professor who's sitting next to me, Dr. Little, who as a single man learned to bake cookies. And I, he probably thought it was a little thing. Oh, did you see, oh, what, brother. see what I did there? A little thing. Oh, half a point. Oh, that was, oh, come on. But seriously, like Dr. Little would bring us cookies. And, you know, he probably thinks like, who cares? They're cookies. But like for some students, oh, that was really, you know, you took a lot of time to do that. It was very thoughtful and kind. And so... All those little things, I think, I think you, you pair those together and it's Jesus loving the, sh- the people he's speaking to, like caring about them, being emp- like, like really caring about the people, not just out doing his job, but then knowing he is God and knowing his father and doing his father's will. I really think you can see that in this idea of you like, love your subject, love your mm-hmm. students. So how, what are ways you've seen your teacher? You mentioned one, Tim. Dr. Mm-hmm. Meyer took you yeah. out to eat. What are other ways you think of either of you? Well, just even to jump in, I don't really make cookies anymore. Nobody ever eats them. Oh, seriously? Yeah, it's like the whole what people eat has changed and whatever else. Everybody's got to eat healthy and blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's so, true. Yeah. I mean, I make some cookies and then they all sit there. Maybe people have one or two out of courtesy, but... Anyway, I don't make cookies too much. Oh, man, back in the early 2000s, people, we would polish off. They did. Like two, three dozen something. I mean, it was a lot of cookies. I made quite a few, and some of them would take three or four or I think you made 48 most of the time, because I think you'd do four (laughs) dozen, and we would. Oh, my goodness. I mean, Andy was was in a class of like 19. He was was, was It was pretty awesome, people. That's still a lot of cookies. You should see some of the students today. I think they're still eating cookies. (laughs) Hey, I have tried to stop. (laughs) Yikes. Okay, well, I will. I want. I resisted. I resisted mentioning these two, but I have to. I'm pretty sure the first first time I ever went to Caribou Coffee in Ankeny was with Stearns. I met you there early in the morning. I do. I don't even that. know what we did, but we met at Caribou Coffee once. And uh, shout out to Caribou, not a sponsor. Um, <laughs> I did a lot of homework <laughs> at that Caribou. The Caribou in Ankeny has made a lot of. I've written a lot of yeah. theological papers at that Caribou Coffee. Um, and then I remember a day when uh, Jonathan, a friend of mine, a roommate of mine in college and seminary, uh, we went over to eat at, I think, probably the, one of my very first like real interactions with Tim. I was, uh, they invited Jonathan and I over to eat at his house. And <laughs> that is not a normal interaction. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Nope. I don't. I, I think Bible college students maybe don't understand. They take for granted what they have. And maybe not all Bible colleges are the same, but I know at most universities, you will never eat a meal. You will never eat a meal with a professor. You won't. And the fact that they are inviting you to your to their home, that that's you know, an incredible advantage. It is a sign of of the love that they have for their students. And uh, I think it, it's it's an expression of their love for their subject because they know. Mm-hmm my genuine interest in the student is going to help motivate them to love the subject with me. Yeah. It's connected to the Great Commission. It I is. mean, I that's why I do it. it. It's not that... <sighs> it's my mission isn't necessarily to... My mission's bigger than that. And so it's in service to my Lord that, that we do that. So... Um, no, I would agree. I think it's it's more than just a pedagogical technique to make classes more. So you can think of like, if you got on like a higher ed website and it's like, here are 10 tips to make your classroom. I don't think that's, I don't think that's it. I think what it is is what you just said, Tim. It's, it's, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which as a Bible college teacher, as a Sunday school teacher, as a parent, it means you're loving God's word because you love the Lord. As a pastor. Yeah, as a pastor. Thank you. I was trying to think of all the context. I didn't want to miss one. But if you love the Lord, then you want to study his word because you want to know what he has to say. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. And so if, if, if like I remember one day I'm walking around the circle as a freshman and I'm having a bummer of a day. I can't remember what it was. Dr. Cole is walking across campus, stops me, says something nice, prays for me. I'm thinking like he's got a billion things to do. So, Shall we close with the word? Yeah, let's do, do it. it. So I'm going to be in Ecclesiastes again. By the way, I'm going to be done in Ecclesiastes here pretty soon. So um, we'll be looking at some other books of the Bible and theological conversations. But right now I want to just close with uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And what is a good life? This is uh, There's major confusion in our culture because our culture usually defines life, uh, defines a good life as whoever dies with the most toys wins or... Um, Whoever lives the longest, there's a huge emphasis in our culture about living a long life, like that's some accomplishment. But Ecclesiastes, and Solomon, the author, teaches us uh, a different, a different uh, measurement of a good life. So I'm going to read through, uh, start reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil or a calamity which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself, for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, to consume it. But a foreigner consumes it. This is a puzzle, and it's a terrible affliction. Uh, so here we have a situation where somebody has a lot of wealth, and guess what? They don't get to consume it. They don't get to enjoy it. And how, what is his summation on that? Bad news. This is not a good life. So what is a good life? So then he looks at verse 3. If a, man give, if a man gives birth to a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in a puzzle and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, 
but has never, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. What is a good life? Is it long life? No. A good life is not measured in the years of your life. What is a good life? Is it something that their culture valued? Children, you know, our culture could use more value of children, but their culture valued children in a great uh, extent. And so is that the measurement of a good life? No, that's not a measurement of a good life. What is a measurement of a good life? And it's something we don't think about, but it's actually to enjoy the blessings that God has given you. That is a measurement of a good life. Your life could be 20 years. It could be 40 years. It could be 60 years. That life, if it's filled with the contentment, okay, you're not going to enjoy anything that God has given you if you're not content with what God has given you. That's another theme of Ecclesiastes. That's what he's getting at here. His, this idea of enjoying the pleasures is connected to being content with what God's given you. If you can enjoy and be content with what God has given you, then that is a good life. And if it's 20 years, so be it. If it's 40 years, so be it. If it's 60 years, so be it. It doesn't need to be 100 years. We have an incorrect measurement of the value of a good life. Before I wrote my dissertation, I was thinking of different ideas, and one of the topics I was considering was a biblical theology of dying. Because we don't know how to die. And there's been a few books written recently on that. I I proposed that idea to my mother-in-law, and you should have seen the look on her face. It was not very approving. We're going to study dying and how to die well. Well, we don't know how to die well. I think if we figured out how to die well, we would know how to live better. So I think there is value to that study, and Solomon teaches us. Live a good life. Be content and enjoy what God's brought your way today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.